0: And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and
1: CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. For a generation, Tony Fabrizio has been a central figure in Republican politics as a top pollster and strategist. His advice to Donald Trump in the general election of 2016 was instrumental in the critical targeting of Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania by the campaign that ultimately would deliver Trump the presidency. He offered unheeded advice in 2020 that may well have saved Trump, and his analysis after the election about why Trump had lost enraged the former president, who remains in denial to this day. I sat down with Fabrizio this week to talk about his long, colorful career— the challenges of being a gay man in a party often inhospitable to gay rights, and, of course, to talk about Donald Trump. Here's that conversation. Tony Fabrizio, it's great to see you, my friend. Good to see you, my friend. Thank you for uh, being here. Happy to do it. I I want to know about your your family's history before we get into your political history and your history in politics. Tell me where the Fabrizio's uh, came from and uh, your journey from the, the uh, from New York city to long Island, where it all happened
0: for you. Well, um, my father's side of the family, uh, my grandfather, uh, Michelangelo Fabrizio, nice. uh, came from there is some dispute uh he claimed (laughs) god rest his soul that he his family came from naples and uh others say that they actually came from the outskirts of Rome. so i guess it's some disputed territory there about where he actually came from. sounds like italy though yes it's all italy Uh, (laughs) he came when he was young um and he originally went to colorado um, he was one of 22 or 23 children.
1: Oh my God. My
0: great grandfather had three different wives and he was one of the youngest. And my great grandfather apparently had passed away. And the, the I, from exhaustion, probably. Yeah, probably. Right. Yeah. Uh, but he, he went to Colorado to live with some relatives and met my paternal grandmother whose family moved there from the Naples area. And she, uh, her family were sugar beet farmers, and back in those days, you know, sugar beets, you know, especially during the depression, they were one of the few things that people could farm. And they met, and they got married. But during the depression, there was nothing they can do. It was there was no work. So my, they moved from Colorado to New York because mm-hmm. my grandfather had gotten a WPA job or a CCC job. One of the one of the New Deal jobs, and they settled in. So your
1: Republicans are so disdainful of these kinds of
0: programs, and here you no, go. My grandfather I mean was a dyed-in-the-wool Democrat. <laughs> I mean, I don't remember much, but he was definitely pro-union, pro-Democrat. Uh, uh-huh. My my paternal grandfather, uh-huh. and uh, he came to New York, and he worked in several jobs. My grandfather had a bit of a temper and had a hard time working with a boss, and eventually opened up his own produce stand in Brooklyn and sold produce for years. Mm -hmm. In the summer, we'd sell produce. In the winter, we'd sell Christmas trees. They'd sell anything. You know, when I was a kid, I used to go with my father because my father still had to work to help his father because that's just the way it was. Right. And I I remember selling watermelons and cantaloupes and, you know, all those things. And at Christmas time, standing out by the 55-gallon drum, the fire and the drum warming my hands selling Christmas trees uh-huh. uh, up until Christmas Eve. It was interesting. And my maternal side, my mom's parents, both were first generation. And they were from, both were from Bari, which is kind of on the other side uh, from Naples. And my grandparents were first cousins. Uh, yeah. My maternal parents. Yeah, which yeah, was well, that was a true. Huge think, scandal. Yeah, yeah, no, that was in our
1: family. We had that too. Yeah,
0: it was true scandal. Both sides had nine kids. My father is the youngest of nine. My mom was the oldest of nine. I am mm. the oldest of thirty-eight grandchildren on my mother's side, and I'm in the middle of twenty-three, twenty-four on my father's a side. A lot of so, cousins. Yeah. Oh man, family is huge. Extended yeah. family is even huger. But my mom's folks settled in New York. My grandfather's family was in the ice business back in those days and not had refrigerators. They had ice and they used to haul the ice up and put it, you know. Uh, and my grandmother's family uh, was also in the ice business. And they married and they settled. They bought a house, finally. When they bought a house, they bought a house literally three blocks from where my father's family lived. And that's how my mom and dad met as young teenagers in the same neighborhood. And it was a very... It, it, You've seen the movie Goodfellas? Yes, I have. That was my old neighborhood. Literally, that was my old neighborhood. That was the people that associated with my aunts and uncles. Uh, One of my uncles used to bartend in the bar where they all used to hang out. I mean, I went to Catholic school with all of their kids. My father was a construction worker for years. He was a laborer and a union guy. And uh, when I was about 12, 13... A little bit before that, my father went into his own business with a friend of his, a uh, home improvement construction type business, mm-hmm. and finally earned enough money to buy a house in, out in Long Island. Um, and we moved out to Long Island, and we were the first ones to leave Brooklyn. Everybody else lived like in a in a seven block square radius. And, you know, when you were that age, you couldn't get in trouble because there was always an aunt or an uncle driving down the block or seeing you what you were doing, et cetera, et cetera. And you knew everybody. Their parents grew up on my parents. Their grandparents came over on the boat. You know, everybody knew everybody. So you were, you
1: were 12 when you moved. Is that what you said?
0: Yeah. 12. Yeah. 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 And how was that? How was
1: moving to, how
0: was to Long Island? It was strange for several reasons. One is I was in Catholic school in the sixties, right. And the early seventies and my Catholic school was integrated. It was in East New York, Brooklyn. If you, those days, that was, I mean, my neighborhood was all white, all Italian. Mm-hmm. There was nobody else, right? Everybody knew everybody. But our Catholic school was predominantly white, but we had a number of black and Hispanic students in the school. And, you know, even though they weren't in our neighborhood, we thought nothing of having them, you know, kind of in the class, you know. Uh, I had friends that used to come play with me at my house and, you know, et cetera, go to parties together, like birthday parties and stuff. Black friends, Hispanic friends. Ba- Black and Hispanic friends. When we moved to Long Island, we moved to a school district. We lived in school district 23, which when back in those days when people would sell houses. They would literally, one of the first lines they put in the for sale notice was home in school district 23, which was code for all white schools. We moved, there was not a single Black or Hispanic kid. In fact, it wasn't until I got to high school that I had any friends or that I knew any Hispanic kids in school.
1: This was in the in the sort of mid-70s. This
0: was seventy. Early. so I, it was like 74, 75, mm-hmm. 76. So that was one of the big differences. The other was, is that we were so used to being around other people that shared the same common heritage that when we moved to Long Island, they used to call Massapeak or matzo pizza because it was supposedly half Jewish, half Italian, which really (laughs) kind of wasn't true because there was a lot of Irish and German. And this was the first time seeing how clicky, you know what I'm saying? And how segregated people were, even though you lived on the same block, they didn't necessarily associate with each other. So there was still ethnic division mm-hmm. aside people from racial division. Yeah. They sorted themselves. Yeah, You know, we gravitated with the Italian people on the block. The Irish people gravitated with it. And so, you know, when you grow up in New York and you get from Chicago, there is, there was a whole level of ethnic politics. Yeah. This one, when I first moved to it was racially segregated. And ethnically segregated too, in a lot of respects. Yeah. It really was, which was, and so that was a, that was a shock. Also going from public, a Catholic school where the nuns would think nothing of, you know, uh, corporal punishment on a, on a student to public school where the teachers would never do that. So that was another big difference. Um, and not being around relatives, obviously, but, um, if I hadn't moved to Long Island, I don't know that I would have pursued a political. Well, let me ask you about politics. that. Was
1: politics discussed in your home? I mean, you said your father was a uh yeah. or you I guess your, your grandfather was My a, grandfather was an FDR my Democrat. my
0: mother's my mother's father was probably the most political out of all of them to the extent that any of them were political. Uh-huh. Um and he was a Republican. In fact, when my mom and dad got engaged, they got engaged at the local Republican club clubhouse, that's when they had no the kidding. engagement party. Yes, in Bellrose,
1: they provided the place. Yeah, you as, can write l- as long as your uh, your folks agreed that their kids would become Republican <laughs> no,
0: operatives. No, not at all. In fact, my parents could have been couldn't have been less political. My entire family. So, how would you get interested in it? I was always kind of interested in it. Uh, I remember in '72, I'm a Nixon fanatic. I was a Nixon fanatic. I, you know, that was the, you know, think about it. You know, I was 12 when he won re-election and I remember sitting at my grandparents' house in Brooklyn watching on the small black and white TV, you know, uh, Walt Cronkite and all of those guys. So talking why, about why the, what was
1: it about Nixon that appealed I... to you? Because I, I got to you know, tell you, my mother cried when Nixon got elected. I had to calm her down. <laughs> this is 1968, but go,
0: go ahead. I, did, I, you know, it was, I don't, honestly, I don't, I don't know. I thought, I thought Nixon was an interesting political character. Um, I thought he managed to straddle and I didn't, at that point in time, I, I don't, I didn't see it the way I see it now, but Nixon managed to straddle the ideological divides within the Republican party in a way that most people never did or could never do. I mean, at the same time as being, you know, Mr. Staunchly anti-communist, he, he did wage and price controls and the, you know, put in place the EPA things that now
1: relations with China, right?
0: Right. It's that things that the modern Republican party would, would never happen. That would never happen in the modern reform party. But my fascination with Nixon, um, I was always kind of interested. And when we moved to Long Island, I started paying more and more attention to it. Um, And then probably one of the biggest things for me was um, in junior high school, started reading Ayn Rand's books, Mm -hmm. Anthem. And in fact, in one of my classes, we played out that book, The Trial. And I was the guy who was the the lawyer for individual freedom. And I remember, I'll never forget, uh, the guy who was the attorney for the government, for the state, uh, was a friend of mine. Uh, His name was David Sussman. I'll never forget. And... We took it really seriously, and we had a, a mock trial in class. I won the trial, of course. Um, well, geez, and-
1: if you're enacting an Ayn Rand book, then <laughs> you certainly had the advantage in that. Uh-
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. It really kind of impacted me, and then I started reading, you know, more of, you know as I got to, like, 15, so when I got to high school, a friend of mine, female friend of mine, was a member of the Young Republican, and— I joined the young Republicans and before I knew it, I became president of the young Republicans. And soon after that, I became town chairman of the young Republicans. And now this is in Nassau County, which yeah, is, you well, know, I was going
1: to ask you about that. Yes. They had one of the great political machines in the country. Joe Margiato yeah. was the chairman of the he Nassau. He kicked me out of the young
0: Republicans. <laughs> Why? So God rest Joe's soul. We ended being Very good friends, years later. But when I was town chairman for the town of Oyster Bay, Young Republicans, we were having a fight over who should be the next young Republican president. At that point, I had already joined Young Americans for Freedom and and I was a Reaganite at that point. Mm -hmm. And the guy they wanted to make young Republican president, we considered to be a Rockefeller Ford type Republican. And so we had this fight and Margiata basically called us into his office and said, we're not having this fight. This is the guy who's going to be young Republican president. And uh, did he pick the he, Ford
1: Rockefeller guy?
0: Yeah, of course he did. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And he was like, so you guys go along with that. And he said, if you can't go along with it, resign. And so basically I stepped down as young Republican chairman, but kept on doing campaigns and stuff like that. And later on, Marge and I had a, I would say reconciliation because he, Probably didn't rec- recognize me or remember me, but it was it was funny telling the story to him back.
1: Yeah, no, he was a he was a legend before he unbelievable went away at the invitation of the federal government for about a thirteen month sentence or something. You went to Long Island University, uh-huh. uh, but and then uh, ultimately uh, you began working with a guy who was sort of a uh, a seminal figure in the Republican evolution. Arthur Finkelstein, pollster, political strategist. We'll we'll talk a little bit about why he's a legendary figure. But tell me about that, uh, how that came about.
0: So 1978, when I was town chairman, I became very close to all the elected officials. And a town councilman by the name of Greg Carman, who went on to become a federal court claims judge, uh, was going to run for Congress uh, in the congressional district that I lived in. And he asked me to come on board and be like the political director of the campaign. Now, understand the campaigns I had been involved in up until that time were local campaigns, which, you know, they you know, they consisted of putting up yard signs, handing out mm-hmm. leaflets, going to railroad stops. I mean, right. that sort of stuff, all local organizational stuff. And so in this campaign, we actually had a real headquarters. They hired a campaign manager from not around here, like a professional campaign manager. And we had a, a pollster and a consultant. And so the campaign manager and I hit it off and he sent me down to Washington. I did a Morton Blackwell school. I did an NRCC school. And this was like eye opening to me because now, you know, out of Nassau County, you know, what do you mean the county chairman doesn't control everything? And they're like, I don't even know who the county chairman is, where I'm running. And I'll forget, one day I go into the headquarters, and the campaign manager's name was Pat. Pat says, come here, I want you to meet our pollster and our consultant. And I go into his office, and there was Arthur Finkelstein and somebody else who has become rather infamous, a fellow by the name of Roger J. Stone. Yes, I've who heard was, of him. Yes, I've heard of him too. He was working for Arthur at the time as his aide-de-camp. And... Pat introduces me and we start talking and I'm like, what do we need a pollster for? What do you tell us? And he started laughing and he goes, well, I told the campaign what voters think and to. i I'm like, "What? we know what voters think. And so we got into this whole like back and forth and he's like, how do you think you win campaigns? I'm like, I'll tell you how we win campaigns. We put up enough yard signs to do this. And he's just laughing. And at the time I didn't realize it, but he just found it so funny that somebody actually, ble- and then, He started go. We started going back and forth. And I was like, oh, maybe this guy's making sense in some of this stuff. So fast forward, we kept in contact. He lost Greg narrowly, came back and ran again. And two years later in 1980, I was basically the campaign manager for the rerun. And I became a lot closer and saw what it was that Arthur did and how the polling worked and direct mail and TV commercials and all that stuff.
1: Arthur uh, spawned a whole generation of uh, Mm -hmm. characters who became uh, significant in Republican politics. He also, he had two sort of revelations. One was good for political consultants, which was the advent of independent political committees. But the other thing was, you know, and I wanted to ask you this, having grown up in Long Island in, as you describe it, a white working class community in the 1970s, there was a tremendous sort of cultural and racial backlash in these communities that began sort of in the mid-60s with the civil rights movement, with the sort of counterculture movement, and so Mm -hmm. on. He really understood how to mine those sentiments, didn't he?
0: He did. You know, one of the things that was interesting is he used to give an example about how a, a person could say a single thing about themselves, a political candidate and tell voters so much by that single thing they say because voters extrapolate it out. He would talk about symbolism. And the example he would use was if a candidate came in the room and all they told you was they were against forced school busing. And he talked all about how forced school busing, being against forced school busing, defines you in so many ways to so many different voter groups. It was symbolic to them about what your values and what your beliefs were, if you were for it.
1: Really what you're describing, what what, it became, what was popularly known as the Reagan Democrat.
0: It was. Yes. One of the things I I learned from him is he would always have in his surveys, back in those days, you still had conservative Democrat. There was still a sizable chunk of Democrats that would define themselves as, self-define themselves as conservative. And one of the crust tips he would always have in the survey is conservative Democrats Mm -hmm. and white conservative Democrats. because. Those were the Democrats that he felt we could get, because back in those days, Republicans were still not at parity with Democrats in yeah. many places.
1: Finkelstein also, he was, correct me if I'm wrong about this, but when Jesse Helms ran against uh, Harvey Gantt for the Senate, it was Finkelstein was the strategist behind an ad about affirmative action. The handset. Yeah. With a yep. pair of uh, white hands, crumpling up paper, throwing it out and say, you know, yep. you were qualified. You should have gotten the job. But You wanted
0: to, that job. You needed that job.
1: And the job went to a, a black person. Right. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. One of the things that you're associated with was also, I think the most effective, maybe the most effective negative campaign of my lifetime that I've observed was the 1988 campaign for president, George H.W. Bush's campaign for president against Michael Dukakis. Mm -hmm. Dukakis was the liberal Democratic governor of Massachusetts, was 17 points ahead after the Democratic convention, which came first. Bush was the sitting vice president, Reagan's vice president, but the history is that third terms for a party are very tough. And Bush came back, and he came back largely on the basis of a very, very, very tough campaign. Roger Ailes was the architect of it uh, on on the campaign side. Were you you were working for a PAC, you were polling for a-
0: Yeah, Americans for Bush.
1: You guys did an ad that is everybody now refers to as the Willie Horton ad. But it was an ad about a guy who got a uh, furlough a furlough from prison in Massachusetts and went on a spree of, of, I don't know whether murder was involved, but rape was involved. And you guys did an ad picturing Willie Horton and talking about Dukakis' record, and it created a sensation. Talk about that.
0: We talked about this stuff because there were several, a number of articles written about Dukakis's record. And we knew that from the polling that we had seen that the key was we had to push Dukakis to the left. If you push Dukakis to the left, it opened up voters to Bush. And the thing that stood out was the Willie Horton example of, you know, the furloughs. And it was the most egregious of the furloughs that had been granted because he did go and like on a murder and rape spree after he got furloughed. We literally paid the networks, the cable networks in advance for like two or three weeks because knowing that they're never gonna give you the money back and we put the ad up and even though everybody was calling for it to be taken down, the truth of the matter is the networks didn't wanna give us the money back because they didn't wanna forfeit the money and they kept it on the air, but we never imagined the earned media that it would generate and it just became this, I mean, I think we spent maybe a million dollars on cable TV nationally, but it received probably hundreds of millions of dollars in free ad time and uh, free air time on the the news media. But we knew it would be controversial, a, l-
1: a little like the Swift Boat ads against exactly Kerry years against later. Kerry,
0: against Kerry. Yes,
1: didn't it feed into something larger relative to race? You talk about you talked about the people who moved to your suburbs to get away from, I forget how you described it, and they you know, they didn't want it coming out
0: there. Yeah, white flight. It was white flight. There was no question about it. Yeah. We knew that the media would pay attention to it. We didn't imagine that the media would pay as much attention to it as it did.
1: But wasn't it also meant to galvanize these, the folks like your neighbors in Massapequa?
0: Yeah, but the, the assumption was that we thought we were ever going to have enough money to reach all of those people, and we never thought it. We wanted to put it into... At when we started it, we thought if we could start the conversation then and, and have the Bush people pick it up and other people pick it up, that would be great. We never imagined that we'd be the conversation because we knew we'd never have enough money to be the conversation, but it just kind of snowballed on its own. No, We never imagined that we were going to get that much press out of it. Never, ever.
1: Did you have any qualms about it? Uh, I mean, not about the effectiveness of it, but about the propriety of it, about what what you were trying to tap into. uh, You could have chosen a white guy.
0: But it wasn't the most egregious of the furloughs.
1: So it's just the fact that it was egregious. It wasn't that he was. No, 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 I'm not going to I'm
0: not going to deny that he did not look like a crazed maniac. He did. Mm -hmm. If it had been a white guy or a Latino guy who looked like a crazed maniac and had done what he had done, we would have used both of them. I mean, if we if 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 it had been the Boston Strangler, Albert DeSalvo, F- De I think it probably wouldn't have generated the media outrage, but it still would have communicated the same message. And that was Michael Dukakis was too liberal. And that was the point of the ad. The point of the ad was Michael Dukakis didn't share your values. And by the way, that ad led to ultimately attacks on, Dukakis about the American flag. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? That had nothing to do with race at all. The American flag. It had to do with the fact that Michael Dukakis was out of step. Tony, I got to, I got to move on
1: because there's Mm -hmm. so much, I could talk to you for about six hours, but we don't have six hours. Uh, Let me just stipulate. You earned your spurs as a pollster. You became one of the preeminent pollsters in the Republican party. Uh, You polled for Bob Dole in in, in, in 96, his presidential race, uh, and you've been involved almost in every cycle. Uh, Come 2012, you went to work for Rick Perry, Mm -hmm. and this led to trauma in in your own sort of personal life. Absolutely. And I want to ask you about this because Perry campaign ran an ad and the ad was uh, perceived as an assault uh, in Iowa, to, because Iowa has a big event evangelical vote. Ran an ad, and it, it was perceived as an assault on gay people. Mm-hmm. Uh, this led to you being outed. Yes. Uh, and talk to me about that. About about the personal experience. First of all, about your uh, you know sort of evolution in your life and And about how and about that particular moment,
0: well, I just I go back to where I said I was raised, and in the neighborhood, I said I was raised <laughs> there weren't a whole lot of gay people, <laughs> and there were no there were no gay um role models. they just you know what I'm saying it was nobody i mean it was and uh you know, so did you know then did no, you- I didn't I didn't, and i w- well. I I could say I wish I did, but then I wouldn't have had my three children, and I wouldn't have my grandchildren, and yeah, I wouldn't trade you any married, of that for How long were wa- you married? I was to married your wife. for seventeen years. Mm-hmm. Seventeen years, and so it was. I literally, it was a combination of repression and just like locking it away. Once it finally started to come to the fore, and just focused on building my business and my career.
1: Arthur Finkelstein was was gay and was in a committed relationship for half a century.
0: I'm still friends with his husband, Uh the former husband Donald. It was, in fact, so he was a
1: role model in a way.
0: Well, you see, when I worked for Arthur, we never talked about it. It was always we just never talked about it. It wasn't until uh, I came out to him. And he almost, I'll never forget, I told him we were at dinner at, uh, what's that steakhouse right off the Capitol. I can't think of it. Oh, Charlie Palmer's. Yeah. He and I are having dinner and I told him and I thought he was going to fall off his chair. He was like, what? Are you serious? Uh, didn't want to believe him. So it was a very difficult period. By the time the Rick Perry thing had happened, I had already, you know, my wife and I were already separated and divorced and. People in my personal life all knew it. My employees knew it. I didn't hide it. My kids knew it. Oh, my kids, yeah, my kids knew it. I didn't hide it if people asked me. I just didn't go around telling people. And by the way, I had done several pro-marriage amendments, campaigns against anti-marriage amendments. I had done work for several gay groups. uh,
1: But let me ask you, just ask you, because... I remember 2004, for example, when all these anti-marriage amendments were placed on ballots around the country by uh, Karl Rove and and by the George Bush. W. Bush campaign to try and promote turnout in the general elections. In those campaigns, there is, as you know, the evangelical movement is a major component of the Republican prim- uh, primary base, which is why Perry was running that ad. How do you square it? I mean, how, how do you work with that?
0: One is when there was a whole discourse that was written about that ad. Uh, when they wanted, to, when the ad was suggested, I was like, this is crazy. They this said, this, why are we doing this ad? Yes. And, you know, in campaigns, you get outvoted on campaigns. And it turned out the ad, the ad didn't do anything that it was expected to do. The only outcome of it was I got outed and got outed by basically the log cabin Republicans. Who, by the way, I was the only person that stood up and helped them in 2004 when they were trying to stop the federal marriage amendment and did polling work for them. So I thought that was kind of odd. How did Perry react when you told him? He and Anita Perry were, we don't, you know, doesn't matter, does if you're gay or not. And everybody on the campaign was fine. The thing that was most difficult was, and at some to some degree, thankfully, social media didn't exist to the extent that it exists now, was, you know, the brickbats on, you know, online and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And by the way, I don't know if you remember this, but Andrew Breitbart and a couple other people resigned from the log cabin board because they outed me. Uh, and said, "This is a group that supposedly protects," and then you know, you you know, you went and did this. And so, I guess
1: what I'm trying to, what i what I'm trying to get at is, like you said, the Perrys were fine. Um, so how? And this is an honest question. I'm trying to get s- sort of accepting you as a gay as a gay man, mm-hmm. but but opposing gay rights. The Republican Party sort of dined on anti-gay sentiments for for a long time you know maybe in some quarters still do and you know you're a central figure in the party
0: I'm gonna get myself and I still am and yes the fact I know, that I, know does, you are. I know and, and, you are but, but, well thank you for that but I but but it doesn't matter now and in fact I particularly enjoy when evangelical leaders have to sit down and cross for me at the table and talk about politics you know one of the things that I've learned is, and I live in Fort Lauderdale, and as you know, Fort Lauderdale has a very large gay community, and I'm married, I have a husband, and one of the things I learned in this process is gay is what I happen to be, not what I am. People approach it two different ways. There are, in my community, a lot of people who, because they are gay, are very, very down the line about everything it is to be gay. And there are people who, like me, in the gay community, although we don't get as much attention as the others may, who it just happens to be that we're gay and we don't, you know, we're not as, I don't want to use the word militant, but we're not as activist about it as other people are. Did it disturb me? about the marriage stuff? Yes. And I worked against it. Was I going to leave the Republican party over it? No, I was not.
1: Yeah. That's, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are people who are listening. who are going to say like, I'm, I'm Jewish. If my party were doing things that I thought were anti-Semitic or if I were black and my party opposed, you know, um, voting rights in the sixties for black people or, uh i would be uncomfortable with that and i would uh, and 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 i would say well maybe i'm not aligned here because on this fundamental issue to me i mean
0: that's the key was marriage fundamental to me that's the key that really is the key um and at the time to be honest with you i could never see myself getting remarried again
1: mm-hmm.
0: i just could never see myself getting remarried again well looking I, back now patient, you are now I am. Yeah, now I am. Um, and at the time, if I had been, I'm, or I wanted to be, maybe I would have looked at it differently, mm. but I didn't view it as stopping me from living my life as a gay man because it wasn't taking away something that I wanted at that point in time. I, it's the only way I could explain it.
1: You know, I think people ask this of us as political consultants all the time. It's like, what are our obligations? I mean, our fundamental role is to try and win campaigns. And the question is, what, what should the boundaries be uh, in winning those campaigns? Is it just, are we, is it our responsibility? And believe me, I made a thousand ads in my life. I'm sure people will take issue with with ads that I, I made. But, you know, is your role simply to win no matter how? Or is it to say, hey, you know, I mean, it's an interesting question.
0: In 17, I was the the AAPC was kind enough to give me yeah. the pulse through the year award, yeah. And I'll never forget um, Mark Melman,
1: another po- a Democrat, very very fine Democratic. yeah.
0: Pollster. Who who I like Mark, and I think yeah. Mark's very bright. Yeah. He stood up in the audience and he said, "Tony, he's I've known you for years." He said, "How do you justify work working for Donald Trump? How did you justify that in your mind?" And I looked at him. And I was actually shocked by the question from, you know, a fellow pollster. And I said to him, you know, Mark, I said, we have elections and voters get to choose who they want and who they don't want. They get to choose in primaries. They get to choose in general elections and voters get what they choose. And it's not my job to make the decision for voters. It's my job. It's our job as political professionals to present our candidates in the best light possible on the issues that hopefully can move voters in our direction. If voters didn't like Donald Trump, they wouldn't have elected him. That was, it's just that simple. And you know what? In 2020, it went the opposite way, right? So voters got their chance. They got their choice. And if we're going to be, I think if we're going to be kind of the moral police. If people are expecting us to be the moral police, I think they're expecting a lot from our profession because our profession is not going to do that. We're not going to be the moral police. Let's talk about
1: Trump because you didn't start off working for Donald Trump in 2016. In fact, in 2011, when he mused about running for president, you told me you wouldn't work for him.
0: (laughs) No, I told him right. Yes. Well, because in 2011, I didn't understand my history goes back with Trump a number of years. Yeah. You know, I did work for his casino companies, his development companies, on and off. I did work uh, uh, when he was thinking about running as the Reform Party candidate in 2000, in 98, 99. I did some work for him. So it wasn't a surprise that this was going to happen. But I honestly, in what happened in 2011 was, I had an opportunity to talk to several other candidates and I honestly didn't think that Trump was going to run at the end of the day. And so I didn't want to get used, you know what I'm saying, as a prop and then not have him run and be taken off the playing field, if you understand what I'm saying. Yeah.
1: But you didn't choose him again.
0: Well, no, I went to work for Rand before he even considered getting in.
1: But you wouldn't be criticized if you said in 2011... I'm not sure that Donald Trump can make this transition from reality show host to president.
0: I didn't think he could. Yeah. I didn't think he was serious about it. I didn't think he'd do what it took to to get elected to be honest with you. Um I didn't think he'd file the financial disclosures. I didn't think he'd take to campaigning. I couldn't imagine him doing a rally. You know what I'm saying at that, that. Just yeah. all of these things from the Trump I knew to what he did was
1: we should. There's a little interlude here, which is you had a long, long, long relationship with Paul Manafort, and in fact, it went. Part of that relationship got got you into at least peripherally into hot water, which is he got uh, he involved you in the Yanukovych race in U- in the Ukraine
0: and Porchenko.
1: That became an issue relative to Manafort's uh, activities there on behalf of pro Russia. Uh, candidates, but Manafort uh, becomes chair of the Trump campaign, and he's the one who ushers you into the uh, into the campaign, isn't that right?
0: Yeah, must have been in March. I get a phone call from him out of the blue. Keep this to yourself, but I'm going to go. Looks like I'm going to take over Donald's campaign. I need you to come with me. And I was like, what, what? And it made sense because while Trump was winning primaries. It was very clear they had no idea how the delegate system worked or how you know, they could get out maneuvered.
1: Manafort, way back That's, to nineteen seventy six, was his, an expert on this.
0: Expert. Yeah. And so you know, he said, No, I really need you, and I said, Trump will never go for it. And he said, I already talked to him about it. Uh, he said after he finished cursing about you. He said he settled down and he was fine.
1: (laughs) Because you turned him down in 2011? No,
0: actually, there was another incident that happened in 2014 with the governor's race in Florida, where he was calling me to find out how Rick Scott was doing. And Trump repeats polling. He loves to repeat polling numbers. So he was calling me to find out how Scott was doing. And I called the Scott folks and I'm like, look, Trump is calling you guys trying to get money at him they're like yeah they're like don't call him back don't tell him anything because at the time scott was not doing so well and so, so he remembered that he remembered i did not call him back
1: so he was less concerned about getting the polling numbers than the affront that you didn't call him back
0: oh yes yes
1: we're gonna take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the axe files And now back to the show. What did you think about Trump? What did you see? Because in some ways, Trump was a natural extension of some of the stuff that began way back with Arthur Finkelstein in terms of mining this, this sort of white backlash vote.
0: Yeah, he what I thought about him was I always thought that Hillary Clinton was in many respects, the weakest Democrat that could be put up for the reason that the one thing Hillary Clinton could never be was change. Mm -hmm. She could never be a change agent.
1: Yes. Well, that's why uh, Barack Obama won in 2008.
0: And in our surveys, you know, we started asking a question about, you know, whether or not they wanted a candidate that would take the country in a different direction or continue the policies of Barack Obama. And to be honest with you, the first few times we asked it, we got a segment of Democrats that said they wanted to go in a new direction. And we quickly realized that they were more liberal or progressive Democrats that felt that Obama hadn't gone far enough. So we had to reconstruct the question. But there was always this group of voters in every key state that wanted a change of direction. And they hated both Trump and Clinton, But the fact of the matter was they wanted a change. And once Trump started focusing on that at the end of the campaign, talking about draining the swamp and things like that, and the mail stuff came up, the email stuff about her came up, all of that kind of became for him a fortuitous, uh, you know, event because it kind of crystallized the change thing for him going into the election.
1: Do you, were you trying to persuade him to take that up? One thing I would think would be hard working for Trump is, you know, he is a, a, a natural born mark, self-marketer, been doing it all his life. And so he probably knows or thinks he knows best.
0: <laughs> I will say this about him. He can put his finger on things very quickly. And he definitely knows the people he's talking to, you know, his base. He knows that it it depends. If he respects you, if you earn his respect, he is much less likely to be combative. You know, he'll listen. He may not agree. He'll disagree with you, but he's more likely to listen. I'm, I'm in the place with him where he will actually listen he may not agree and i will walk out and do something else. You know what I'm saying? But he'll at least listen. He doesn't like wave his hand and say, I don't wanna hear from you anymore. Um, but what happened at the end of 16 was, you know, I was working with, at the time, Brad Pascal, who eventually became the 20 mm-hmm. campaign manager and several other people. And it became clear to me that we would never, that there were states in the traditional band of, swing states that we just weren't going to win, like Nevada. And we had a better shot at actually trying to break the blue wall right. in places Michigan, like Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania Michigan, and Michigan, Right. And so that's when they started moving resources there. And that's how it happened.
1: Based on your polling and your advice. Yeah.
0: yeah. That's how it happened.
1: One of the things that happened in that campaign that ultimately landed uh, uh, Manafort in the hot water A lot of things landed Manafort in hot water, some of which had nothing to do with the campaign. But uh, was he apparently sharing uh, polling data with Konstantin Kalimnik? Is that the guy's name? Who was a Ukrainian operative with Russian ties. Did did you know that he was sharing this? And did you you must have known that guy from when you were working in in Ukraine?
0: I knew we called him KK. Mm -hmm. I knew him as the guy, as Paul's guy on the ground. Uh, One of the deals I had with Paul in doing it was I didn't have to go. (laughs) I'm traveling all the way. Yes. Uh Um, And so I would deal with, you know, KK would be the guy that if he needed stuff on the ground, you know, like dealing with the local field house or anything like that, he was the guy that did it. Other than that, you know, getting information like election results and stuff like that, he'd get stuff like that.
1: To, and you had any idea that he was sharing your polling no, data with?
0: I mean, I would give the memos to him and Gates, like you know, like every other campaign. So they just passed. But away. where they went after that, I, I, you know, I. By the way, I don't even know who we shared them with inside the campaign, to be honest.
1: Anyway, moving forward, Trump wins. Tumult ensues around him. 2018 is a disastrous midterm. You came to them, at least I read you came to them, with polling that suggested that Biden would be a tough opponent in 2020. Is that right? That you had polled him in about 10 different swing states and so on, and he was beating Trump in all those states? Well. Was he the guy that you feared, I guess?
0: Actually, the guy I feared the most was Pete Buttigieg. Really? Yes. Interesting. Because I thought Buttigieg, and I told this to Trump, I thought he represented generational change hmm. and I thought he would be more difficult again. He wasn't of Washington. You know what I'm saying? He, he could easily be the change agent. We were the incumbent only against somebody like Biden who had been at Washington so long. Could you still be the outsider? Right? I mean, really, mm-hmm. if the race ever got to that, never got to that. Um, but I thought Buttigieg, given his military service, given his status as being an outside Washington person, his generational appeal.
1: And it's just, I mean, I, I, the obvious question is, to, uh, particularly given your own sensitivities, you didn't think that the fact that he was openly gay would be an, a, an impediment?
0: No. The thing is, is that Americans have moved so far past that. It's not, it's not a stigma. I don't think it's a big stigma anymore. Anywhere. In fact, I hardly I mean, other than some right wing blogs where they talk about the hope of overturning the marriage amendment. I don't I mean, who talks about it? I mean, nobody talks about
1: it. The reason it's interesting to me is that Trump got himself into hot water because obviously he and Giuliani and others perceived Biden as a threat and went to great lengths to uh, try and stop him from becoming the nominee. I mean, why could it go all this trouble in Ukraine? You can't tell me it's because they were offended by.
0: Oh, no. But by that point, they thought that Biden was, the funny thing is, is that they were actually just as worried about Bloomberg.
1: Hmm.
0: And that was a totally New York centric thing. Yeah. I mean, literally, I remember having a conversation with him where he believed that they could steal the nomination from Biden and give it to somebody else. And I was like, they can't do it. The delegates, the way the delegates work, its I, mean, I literally wrote an entire memo for them, laying it out that by the time Memorial Day comes, it's over. They cannot take this from him. Mm-hmm. It's actually even before Memorial Day, they can't take it from him. Um, but they were afraid of Bloomberg and his money, and it was a very New York-centric thing. And the, Bi- uh, you know, the Biden stuff was just, you know, get oppo. Somebody had said that there were dirty dealings and where do you get the oppo from? You know what I'm
1: saying? Yeah. Yeah. After the impeachment, Trump had a surge and looked like he looked like he was on course to get reelected and then uh COVID happened. First of all, if COVID hadn't happened, would Trump have been reelected?
0: I believe so, yes. Absolutely.
1: You said that he would at least give you a hearing. But you wrote a memo in I guess the summer of two thousand and twenty or the the late spring, basically urging him to change course on a whole bunch of fronts, including on COVID.
0: We, uh, we had several heated discussions about COVID. And one of the things is, and this was so fascinating, we would ask his overall job approval about COVID and his overall job approval was underwater. I do depends 14, 16, 17, 18 points, whatever. But then we'd ask individual like nuggets, like getting uh, PPE supplies, you know, uh, making sure, uh, you know, promoting uh, and making sure that pharmaceutical companies have the money they need to 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 do a vaccine uh, or getting aid to hospitals and states and stuff like that. And all of those individual job approvals were double digits higher than his overall job approval. And so it became clear that it was at least as much about how he approached it as what he was doing.
1: Do you think those six weeks in which he was holding daily briefings hurt him?
0: Yeah. Well, in the beginning, no. The first couple of weeks, they were okay. Then when it started to be grievance central, it turned people. And people were watching it. And actually, his job approval numbers during the first couple of weeks were good. It was when it turned into this, you know, the screed on, you know, this one and that one and the other one, and, and people felt they weren't getting information out of them anymore that it turned sour. It just turned sour.
1: Speaking of uh, memos that got you in hot water, in <laughs> December of 2020, after the election, you wrote an, an analysis about why Trump lost. Well, we're sitting here in, uh, what is this, March of 2022, and he still hasn't conceded that he lost and insists that he didn't.
0: Never going to. Understood.
1: How did your memo land with him? You accept that he lost. Yes.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, And I've told him that. And I have been yelled at several times repeatedly for it. Listen, the people in Trump world... You know, I have my fans and I have my detractors. The one thing that my detractors cannot say is that I don't tell them what I think and that I don't tell them the truth. In fact, you know, I would get yelled at for being too negative, (laughs) you know, but you know, when you, when you don't have good numbers, it's tough to be positive with negative numbers. You know that my job is to report the findings, not dress them up to please them.
1: Tony, what did you think when you saw the events of January 6th?
0: To me, they were surreal. I couldn't believe they were happening. I was watching them on TV, and I couldn't I couldn't believe what was happening. And my first thought wasn't, my first thought was, who are these people? And my second thought was, how the hell are they getting into the Capitol so easily? Because I know any time I've gone to the Capitol, and I'm sure any time you've gone to the Capitol, you can't get into the Capitol that easy.
1: You and I both—we've been in this business all our lives. I got into it as I think you did because I had a deep belief in this country and its institutions, and uh, you know the inst- institutions of democracy. I had tears in my eyes. I could—I could not believe this uh, and I- was happening. I mean, did was there not part of you that said? This is,
0: this is outrageous. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I was I, honestly, I was in a state of shock. I was in a state of shock watching it. It was like, like I said, it was, it was surreal. And I couldn't believe that they were getting into the Capitol that quickly.
1: Do you think he
0: should have said something? Yes. Earlier? Yes. Yes. And by the way, it, it is becoming clearer and clearer that he was counseled by several people close to him to do that. Why didn't he? I don't know. I honestly don't know. Do you know, he and I have had conversation about the election. And like I said, (laughs) my opinion on the election, uh, we have never had a conversation about January 6th. In fact, I've never heard him in a private setting that I've been in with him. Talk about January 6th. He talks only about the election.
1: Yeah. I mean, he's out there talking about the election a lot. I hear a lot of Republicans saying, I wish he would shut the F up about the election.
0: I have told him that, look, you made your point. There are a whole host of other issues that need to be talked about. And Biden is providing more than ample opportunity to talk about other issues. And I think he should be talking about them. And, you know, he believes that the election issue is still a viable issue to help move the ball down the, down the field for him. That's one of those times where he just doesn't listen and he does what he wants.
1: And you believe, because we've talked about it, you believe that he's going to run in 2024. I do believe it. And you believe that he'll be the nominee?
0: I believe, barring anything, you know, that we don't, know about, yes. I also believe that he's going to be challenged. Mm -hmm. And not by like Joe Walsh or something like that. I mean, I think it is more than likely that he gets several challengers that would be considered real challengers. Even people that may have worked for him, even though they say now they won't run. I mean, their actions are completely tell it in what they're doing. I mean, Ted Cruz is hiring people in Iowa. I mean, Mike Pompeo is going everywhere you could imagine going. Nikki Haley is out there handing out money and endorsing candidates in races. I mean, all of these people, you know what I'm saying?
1: What about DeSantis, who seems to be the flavor of the month, Governor of Florida? Someone you know well.
0: Ah, yes, having worked for him. I, I believe that of all of them, he's the one most likely to run against Trump regardless of whether Trump runs or not.
1: And can Trump be beaten in a primary? Can he be beaten for the nomination?
0: No, I don't think so.
1: DeSantis uh, seems to be, I mean, emulating Trump in terms of mining these very, very divisive and powerful social issues. He just signed this uh, don't say gay bill.
0: I don't know how you feel about that. He is, it's interesting. I don't know that he's trying to emulate Trump as much as he's trying to capture the attention of the Trump base while still creating distance. Just go down the list of things where you would expect a Trump loyalist to talk about. I mean, things that are kind of like touchstones and he doesn't talk about them. He doesn't, I mean, even Russia, he said nothing on the war. He said nothing on anything. So he finds these narrow areas where he appeals to Trump people, but in the same token, he studiously avoids the other controversial things that would round out a Trump Wallace,
1: Let me ask you as we finish, because you you mentioned Russia, Trump the other day, called on Putin to release information about Hunter Biden, which seems like a spectacularly weird thing to do in the middle of a war in which Americans are, if the Americans are disunified on many, many things. On Vladimir Putin, there seems to be one point of view, which is he is evil. He is. What would you say to Trump?
0: If he had asked me, I would have told him, don't do it. Because what's happening now on the Hunter Biden stuff is, little by little, it is getting into the mainstream. You know what I'm saying? By you doing this, one, you create a controversy and and ask somebody who everybody hates to do this. And two, you only muddy up whatever comes out. Why would
1: you do that? Is it possible, Tony, that Trump, by being consumed with his own resentments about the election or whatever it is by pursuing things in like that i mean we always say well trump can't get away with this he can't get away with that he, he he almost always does but could he become a liability for the republican party by pursuing these kinds of lines rather than articulating sort of other people's you know i think
0: um the one thing i've learned is you're not going to find 10 people in America that don't have an opinion of Donald Trump. Donald Trump, you either like him or you hate him. Donald Trump is baked in the cake. But I do think that the Democrats will try to use him as a foil in the 2022 elections. much like they used him in 18. And I think they're going to meet with much different results because there is a difference between not in the, White Ni- House the White House. You know the difference. You witnessed two midterms yes, yes, with yes, that.
1: yes, 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 yes. Yes the last thing I'll ask you is you say he would likely be nominated if he ran in 2024. Does he have a ceiling that could jeopardize him in
0: 2024? He could get a little bit higher, but at the end of the day, you know, when I see public polls that show them tied nationally or you You did one of them for the Wall Street Journal, right. That show them tied nationally or even him up a point or so. The fact of the matter is being tied nationally, we did, uh, we did an analysis in 20 and in 16 that showed that we could lose the popular vote by as much as four points. So long as we won, you know what I'm saying? In key states and, mm-hmm. and, you know, given states. New York and California, their votes right, in right, Illinois, right. you know, so yeah, he could still win electorally. Yes, absolutely.
1: All right, we'll have to leave it there. But <laughs> I, uh, I really, I could, like, we're just going to have to go in and, and have a beer and continue this discussion. But Tony Fabrizio.
0: Anytime, my friend.
1: Okay, thanks so much. Great to be with
0: you. Thank you, David. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Alison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder-Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Rafina Ahmad, Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.